Hi, this is Sanjay Parak. I'm the host of the Business of Meaning podcast. Today, I'm talking to Bruce Davis. Now, Bruce is the co-founder and joint managing director of Abundance Investment, a P2P platform for sustainable investments that has already raised over £85 million for various environmental and social businesses. Bruce is also an ethnographer. I must admit, that was a new term for me. Um, now, he's applied these uh, skills to great effect in his career, and we'll really get into more detail about this fascinating subject a bit later. Now, Bruce was also a key member of the teams that created the Egg Credit Card, or more recently Zopa, the first P2P lending platform that started in 2005. Now, Bruce has also applied his broad business skills to create a number of different drinks brands, including the Monkey Shoulder whiskey brand. I do hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do. Hi, Bruce. Welcome to the Business of Meaning podcast, and thanks for your time today. It'd be great if we could start off by you giving us a positive history of your career today and how Abundance started. Sure. Um, yeah, so I, I went into the world of work initially from university to, uh, to, to, to learn about marketing, um, uh, mainly because it was something my dad did for a living. <laughs> but, um, but then kind of got into the world of branding, which is quite a, a, a strange sort of world, creating brands and understanding brands. And after about sort of seven years working with various companies around the world and sort of learning how brands work, sort of set out on my own um, as a consultant, and specifically then <clears throat> um, began training as a as an anthropologist to study the the cultural story of brands and how how they operate in in everyday life, and worked with a number of different companies, but particularly started working with finance companies, uh, companies like Egg Bank and also some of the large banks, um, people like Barclays and um, Lloyds and people like that. And, and really the aim there was to help them understand uh, things like money, things we take for granted um, uh, from the perspective of actually how they are used in everyday life or how money operates in everyday life which you would think a bank would understand quite well, but actually in reality, they, they got rather a strange view of money, um, which is the one that sort of is presented to them when you enter a bank branch. And particularly as money was moving online and we were starting to see the beginnings of what we would now sort of understand as, as FinTech um, coming through. Um, so, so I was sort of really there at sort of almost ground zero, really, in terms of the creation of internet banking and, and the idea that the internet was going to somehow change money. And from that, um, a lot of the guys who were founding, founded Egg um, left that company when it got bought by a big American bank and started talking about, well, what, what's next? What, what's the next sort of challenger in this space? And... Um, out of that conversation, partly sort of driven by uh, the customer research that I was doing at the time, um, came Zopa, as you say, the first sort of peer-to-peer lender. And I was part of the team that helped create that um, idea and that brand. And then but decided that I would sort of carry on consulting um, uh, because I sort of enjoyed the variety and working on different problems and I ended I carried on um, working with still working in finance but also working um, in the drinks industry which is where the whiskey brand came from so that's why I was working with one of the big whiskey distillers and spent a long time helping them move away from a stereotypical view of a whiskey drinker and, and, and coming up with 
a new perspective, uh, and that was created a brand called Monkey Shoulder, or one of the one of the things that got created. Um, and then about that time, I was approached by a friend of mine who said I should meet someone else, uh, a guy called Carl Harder, who was doing an MBA at Imperial College, having just kind of gone through a process of setting up a, a sustainable business, sustainable cleaning business. And in, in that experience, I sort of felt he needed to understand business better. And so he, he signed himself up for a, a year-long MBA course. And in the process of which, he was allowed to pitch an idea and work on that idea. And if, if it sort of won the competition, it would get funded by Imperial College. Um, and whilst he was working with a number of MBAs on that idea, he didn't have anyone particularly who was sort of experienced in alternative finance um, because his idea was to come up with a new way of funding uh, the sort of the infrastructure needed for the green transition. And that funding was to come directly from people as small investors. And at that time, that was pretty much impossible to do unless you had quite a large amount of money to invest. Um, so. In that, I, I met up with him actually in the British Library. We had coffee, and within about an hour, we'd come up with what is essentially the blueprint for what's now abundance. Um, so, abundance is a regulated financial company um, which allows ordinary people to invest money directly into projects, companies, businesses are doing a range of things. We started in renewable energy, but the aim was always that we would try and expand into businesses that were focused on other social problems such as housing um, and health, uh, things which actually people are quite happy to see their money in, you know, helping to create. But at the moment, you know, you're, you're very limited in, in how you can participate in that. Um, so that was back in 2008-9. Um, and really then, although Carl and I had never actually run a financial services business ourselves, um, we teamed up with a third founder, Louise Wilson, who uh, was a very senior uh, banker with UBS, or just left UBS, and was looking for to sort of apply her skills in something to do with sustainability. And, and you know, we had a chat with her, and she helped us become a regulated business. So we had to go to the FSA. Uh, apply, and we were the first person people ever to do this, apply for a new license to start an investment company. And after sort of two years of pretty hard work and hard negotiation with the FSA, we were able to get that license, become authorized, and launched our business in 2011. So it's been quite a long process to get to where we are, quite a lot of uh, challenges along the way. Um, and then since that time, We've raised just over 85 million pounds now um, for a range of businesses, about 35 businesses in total, um, doing lots of different things from wind turbines, solar parks, through to um, biomass generation, uh, waste management, and uh, tidal power. And so really quite a, quite a wide range of things that our investors are now investing into. Um, and our aim really is to keep keep building that business, to keep building the number of people that are involved and uh, find more businesses and more projects to for them to fund. 
That's, uh, that's a really great introduction, uh, Bruce, and thank you for that. Um, first thing that springs to mind is you, 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 you talked about uh, the use of anthropology in business, which is quite an unusual approach. Certainly, I've not really come across that in my business mm. career. Could you just expand a little bit on how that applies to uh, initially to branding, I think you said, and then to the wider wider uses in yeah. strategy and business? So within anthropology, you have a number of different practices, and one of them is, is called ethnographic research. So ethnographic research really sort of started out when uh, actually in, in the UK, we, were, we, we had people trying to understand the cultures of the various people that were within the bounds of what was then the British Empire. Um, so it has a sort of colonial past, um, but in the process of doing that, it, it created a narrative or it created you know, basically the idea is you go and you live with people and you, rather than going in with a sort of set of fixed assumptions and questions and questionnaires, you go in and experience the culture and the ethnography is you literally, it's, it, it, it means you know, writing culture. So you write about your experience and so in business terms what that does is it shifts the focus away from this idea that the consumer is the other you know the consumer is something else that you go and investigate and you realize that the, the consumer and the culture in which you operate is your own and, and that actually a lot of the times when businesses get things wrong is when they you know they fail to sort of recognize that fact and the finance is a classic example where you would get uh, people introducing kind of moral or or, um, or even false assumptions into why people did certain things with their money without really considering themselves in that equation or their own role in, in, in that problem. Um, so, for example, why people lack confidence when it comes to finance, um, when they're confident people in other parts of their life, no one really asks that question. And... Um, so the anthropology is really more about businesses understanding themselves and how they operate in a culture rather than necessarily going out into that culture and sort of finding insights that they could exploit. So it's a kind of process of a business looking at itself through a lens that is uh, fundamentally quite challenging and makes you question why you do things. And I think that's the least, you know, that's coming back to sort of your original you know, sort of theme of you know, businesses looking for meaning and purpose. I think businesses lose their purpose when they stop asking themselves questions and start to assume that they are, you know, that they, they, they can impose their will on, on society or culture and, and that's how they're going to make a profit. And I think you know, that, that's, that error gets made time and again. Um, in the process of, of companies sort of growing and maturing. And a lot of it is to do with the fact that they don't really listen to their customers or their culture. They, 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 they just use research as a way of finding ways of telling people stuff about themselves. And um, that ultimately, I think, you know, leads to a disconnect between businesses and, and the people they serve. So it sounds like what you're saying is rather than um, sitting up on high and telling the world about uh, what your business is about, it's, it's much more 
integrative in, in the approach. You're looking at the culture that you're operating in and trying to absorb some of the cultural values that surround you in, in your business. Is that would that be a well? Also, also to identify how those values should change the way you do your business. Um, so what you know, how do you make your business fit better within the the meaning <clears throat> that people are trying to create in their lives? Um, and if you're getting a disconnect, people are angry with you or don't understand you or they find your product is used, it's probably because you haven't understood their perspective well enough um, and you've imposed a different one on, on, onto them. Um, and yeah, it, 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 it's kind of at a very simple level, it's this idea that culture is not something that's sort of cerebral and uh, intellectual, it's a conversation. And so the best way to understand it is to go and experience it firsthand. But you, what you write is not a story about necessarily about the people that you go to live with. It's actually the story about how it changed your perspective as a researcher. So you become research, the research subject rather than people being the subjects of your, of your research. And as an anthropologist, you're telling the story of your journey into that culture and what it did you know how it changed your worldview. Um, so, so yeah, you, you're sort of shifting the power relation from one where brands have all the knowledge and, and all the power to making them realise that they are uh, part of a bigger conversation. I guess. Yeah, yeah, you're you're sitting side by side with your customer rather than being separate. Yeah. From them. Yeah. So, so how did you? Uh, use these uh, techniques and the, this different approach to business to develop uh, abundances, values, and, and, and core mission? Well, from the start, really, I made all of the team that were working on the concept go and spend some time in people's homes and come back with the stories and experiences that they had. And so we used that from the start, really, to inform brand creation, um, including the name, and um, um, but then also uh, to sort of break away from. Um, and when we started out, we were actually a bit more, I think, perhaps a little bit more radical than we are now. I think we've had to, we've learned a little bit about how quickly culture changes over time as well. But uh, we were really trying to change the frame or challenge the frame in which investment <clears throat> had always been seen. So investment previous to abundance was not a particularly democratic idea. It was very much seen as something that wealthy people did and people that didn't have lots of wealth were pretty much limited to using savings accounts and banks and other intermediaries in order to invest their money. And as a result, they got a pretty poor deal actually. Um, so a lot of, um, when you look at the analysis of uh, people like Piketty and so on, and they're talking about inequality, a lot of that comes from the fact that you know, we, we excluded huge groups of people from investing. Um, often, and this is often due to the regulators sort of having this view that somehow there was some secret knowledge that people with wealth had that people without wealth didn't have. And because of that secret knowledge that no one could actually tell you what that was, they were allowed to invest and people without wealth weren't. Because um, when we said we wanted people to invest from five pounds, the first question from the regulator was, well, "Why do you want to do that?" Um, you know, they they didn't understand that that's 
fundamentally the problem. Um, and so we had to, why it took two years to work with the regulators, we had to convince them, and it sort of feels a bit strange now, and I think the FCA that sort of um, superseded the FSA when they, when they split it up, um, would sort of say, well, we've kind of understood this now, but there's still a tendency in the regulator to make an assumption that people with less money somehow need to be almost protected from themselves when it comes to decisions. Mm. And particularly when you introduce ethics into the equation, they get nervous that somehow people would make bad decisions because they are making ethical decisions. Um, and now that sort of contradiction is exactly the sort of thing an anthropologist tries to point out <laughs> and says, right. look, hang on a minute, you can't talk about ethics and good and doing the right thing and then say that we think it's bad that people make ethical decisions because financially they might be taking a risk they didn't understand. Um, how does that, you know, why are you thinking that finance is somehow a different sort of decision to ethics? Um, surely they're the same thing. And um, yeah, I think really that's been our job in a lot of ways. And in the process of creating abundance, because we were, we were the first regulated uh, crowdfunding platform, I think the regulator then had a long, hard look at Zopa, which wasn't regulated at that time for various reasons, um, and said, well, look, should we be regulating the whole sector? Um, and should the whole sector kind of have to go through the process that abundance had to go through to become authorized and make sure that we were operating as a financial firm correctly, um, but also accommodating this idea that within the regulated investment world, small investors were being treated properly and, and, and allowed to invest. So, um, you know, we didn't, we, we, we sort of drove that alongside people like Cedars and Crowdcube and Zopo and Funding Circle um, to change the perspective of government initially and the regulator to realize that if you don't let people make these sort of decisions um, then you you cut out huge swathes of population a from better returns on their money but also from feeling in control and i think given the current <clears throat> um, political uh, uh, well, dilemma that we're in at the moment I and mean, there's exactly that sort of sense of not being in control has been with us for a long time and and money is part of that um the way that money is talked about is part of that sense that we're not in control of the world around us yeah yeah so the, the basis of this sort of I'd, I'd characterize it as paternalistic um you know i'm sure it was done with the best intentions um regarding how Yes. Less, uh, you know, um, less wealthy investors invest their money. What, what, what was that based on? Was there research that was back, backing this up, or, or it was it was based on the fact that prior to um, crowdfunding, um, finance was pretty toxic for small investors, and a lot of them had been ripped off by advisors and still are. You know, when we look at um, what's happening with the British Steel pensions at the moment. Um, and they sort of equated crowdfunding platforms with advisors and said, well, hang on a minute, it didn't go well the last time 
you know, people were allowed to do things. And we just sort of pointed out that, well, they weren't. You made them go through advisors, and those advisors hid a number of things behind a lot of complex terms and conditions that ultimately were designed to make the advisors richer and their customers less well off. Um, you know, you can see through a crowdfunding platform, they're fully transparent. You can see where your money goes. You can see what we get paid and what our issuers are paying you. Um, and I think they started to, I guess, realize that their sort of paternalistic, you know, good intentions were really about protecting people from the finance industry, not protecting people from themselves. And so if you could demonstrate that your model fixed some of the problems that were inherent within the old structures of the finance industry, then you started to change their view that actually maybe they, they should think again about this idea that, that small investors are always worse off if they, if they kind of entered into the stock market. And I think we also challenged the view that, that stock markets themselves were particularly well suited for small investors. Um, that actually a lot of the things that their stock markets benefit big institutions, they don't particularly benefit small investors. So it was it was really just getting people to ask the question, say, well, why do you think that? And and I think so the paternalism hadn't really necessarily come from any sort of research. It had come from a kind of complacency about money um, and a complacency about banks, which 2008 sort of demonstrated was misplaced. Um, and also a complacency about, well, what does it mean to make an investment? You know, the, the assumption was always, well, it should go through a fund of some kind, you know, that people should have a fully diversified portfolio from day one. And, and we said, well, that's, that's fine for people at certain points in their life, but other times they should be allowed to take some risk. Otherwise, how are they going to get any returns? Yeah. Um, if you take risk away from people, you take away their ability to invest. Um, and people do understand risk. And the more they do investment, the more they understand risk. So, um, yeah, it, it was a little bit chicken and egg in a way that they, they didn't, people didn't take risks, therefore they thought people shouldn't take risks. And um, that, that made them feel, you know, as a regulator, it was always easier to say no than yes. Um, and, and in abundance cases, they said no three times. Right. Um, and we had to force the issue in the end and said, well, look, you, you, we will find a way, but you, you know, the regulator initially was minded to say, well, no, we don't want people to do this. We don't think it's a good idea. Um, and ultimately, um, I think they, we, we made them question that answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, it, 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 it's a sort of, it's a strange, it's a particularly um, British culture. Um, uh, but it is it is a strange attitude towards money, and, and and a lot of it is to do with the fact that money we treat money as something quite private to ourselves and a source of sort of public shame if you lose money, mm. and um, we're trying to challenge that and say, well, again, that that doesn't really reflect what money is and how it, how important it is in society. If you make it just a private good, it, it, it really doesn't reflect what what should be being done with money and you only have to look at the narrative around austerity to see what happens when you get that money narrative completely wrong um, my view is that the you know, austerity misunderstands the value of money and what it is um, so 
and what it can do for society and and sort of treats it as if it's something a bit like a drug that you shouldn't have too much of <laughs> or uh, you know or, or sugar you know it's sort of something that's ultimately a bit bad for you um, and I, I just think that's it's very mixed up sort of culture of money that we have uh, it, it doesn't actually reflect the complexity of that system and ultimately it's accountability to people don't in a democracy you know that it, it should be accountable isn't the problem though because of its the complexity uh, that you just alluded to there it's hard to get over a narrative that it's easily understood um and therefore we end up with simple versions of what money's useful for and i guess one of your oh, yeah, totally i mean i think yeah exactly they're, they're, we, we assume people are consumers of money you know that mm. we're almost we need to be talked to the way we're talked to about washing up liquid um yeah so that was something within the Zopa sort of team that we tried to break away from this because Egg was, you know, was a consumer brand. It tried to consumerize money. Right. Um, and what we felt was it was largely unsuccessful in then what it actually achieved with that. So um, because in in sort of that process, like you say, it, there's a, there was a tendency to dumb down the proposition and to simplify not really based on any research, but more because we didn't particularly then have the tools and people didn't have the tools, particularly on the internet, to interrogate what they were doing better um, and to create environments where people felt in control of the decision. You know, when people walked into a bank branch, they felt they couldn't even cough, mm -hmm. let alone challenge the person sat opposite them on the desk and say, well, this isn't the right thing to me. Um, so people just went with what they were told. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it's it's a kind of finance is complex. It does, um, and, and we lack. Um, there's a lot of things been written. Say, for example, about the crisis, um, which I don't think it really shed very much light at all on the realities of the financial system. And if anyway, it's made people feel that it's complicated and dangerous and should only be touched by bankers, as if they somehow had some secret formula. <laughs> Uh, if only they could explain it. Um, and actually, no, I think that you, we need to challenge the people in finance all the time about what they're doing and whether they understand what they're doing. Um, and you would be surprised sometimes the level of knowledge that was really there. Um, I think, you know, I was inside Halifax Building Society, where, or, or Halifax Bank of Scotland, and they were increasingly dependent on short-term money markets for the funding of their products they didn't see this as a problem at all they completely lost sight of their deposit holders because they were no longer important to them and all they cared about was selling credit cards and and selling as many as they could and they couldn't see the dangers in that approach and the risks that they were then taking because they really felt that somehow this time things were going to be different. And as soon as you hear that phrase, it's time to move your money into gold. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it's that, that complete, yeah, it's complacency again, I think that, that, that kind of people start to believe their own hype and believe that their success will continue no matter what. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's very hard in that environment. And I, I got heavily criticized by some of the senior managers inside that company when I pointed out, 
the pressures they were, for example, putting on their own staff mm. to sell, you know, what do you, you know, what do you think you're going to achieve in 15 minutes per product in terms of understanding? Um, so yeah, it, it's a kind of, um, I, I think having seen it from the inside, I think we haven't done a very good job as brands. I guess it's something that we do as abundance as much as we can to explain what money is, what, how it works, how investment works in such a way that people feel in control. Um, and our success or failure will be on how good we are at doing that. And it's probably what, for my marketing team and my product team, 90% of their time is spent thinking about, well, how do we better explain what we're doing? How do we make it clearer for people, the decisions they're making? How do we help them understand risk? How do we help understand the nature of the returns they're making and what could go wrong as well as what could go right? And how do we get the right balance so that people feel empowered to do it, but don't, you know, aren't sold something they didn't, they didn't understand. Um, it's a constant challenge. Yeah, absolutely. So, so this leads me to a couple of questions. You, you talked about when you started the business um, and you sat down and um, came up with the vision and the, and the mission for, for Abundance. And part of that was obviously the name and, and how you embedded yourself in and got the staff to embed themselves in communities that they were uh, ultimately going to serve. As you've grown, how have you maintained the culture uh, the vision, the mission, because it's it's a relatively easy thing to do at the beginning, but as the business grows and changes, and you highlighted then at HBOS, um, clearly yeah. they didn't start out like that, but they ended up in quite a different place. Mm. How are you managing that within your own organisation to maintain the values and make sure that you, 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 you're not veering off in the in the wrong direction? Yeah, well, we still have quite a small senior management team, um, but I think the yeah, we are now, yeah, like I say, we're, we're 20 people now. Um, and there's two things that you do. The first one is that you're constantly looking at your brand and how it operates. And um, we, we continue to do customer research. As particularly as we develop new products to see how they fit with that vision, that original kind of mission and values. Um, we also recognize that values are something you sort of earn they don't change much over time um so the values that we got are pretty much you know that we state as part of our brand are pretty much the ones we started out with um in terms of and you know that's sort of independent of things we do in terms of advertising which will very much be driven by the context at the time and what we want people to try and understand um so there's there's a sort of central kind of brand piece which is held you know i'm as one of the sort of three senior managers in the business i hold responsibility for that brand making sure it stays consistent and stays consistent in everything that we do from the customer service conversations through to the next iteration of our website um so that, that's sort of the first bit i think the second bit is that we engage and campaign as a brand behind our values so we do more we're not just sitting here thinking, well, we can just keep selling what we're doing. We're constantly engaging with um, both government and third sector organisations, including, say, Andy, Andy Goulson's project, as you mentioned, up in Leeds on just transitions. So I was a member of the Green Finance Task Force um, 
which is the government's sort of project to understand how they should grow green and ethical finance in the UK. I also work on the Social Investment Task Force, which has got the same kind of brief for impact investing. And there we are very much saying, well, look, you know, what is the future for these um, areas of finance and how do we help them grow and thrive in an environment you know, where still the bulk of money is invested in fairly um, generic terms. And I think you know, that, that piece keeps you honest about your own goals and objectives. Um, and ultimately, you know, it isn't our money, it's our customers' money. And yeah. our customers make decisions every day as to whether or not they back what we're doing. And if they don't like something we're doing, they won't back it. <laughs> yeah, we're not we're not fund managers. We don't make decisions on their behalf. The only decisions we make are whether or not we think a firm is, you know, appropriate and suitable as an investment to be considered by our customers, but we don't make that decision for them. And so I think crowdfunding as a particular beast within finance is it is it's not necessarily about the wisdom of the crowd, it's about the decisions the crowd make and they shape your business much more than is the case in other financial firms. Um, and I think that that piece is is ultimately, you know, we've got five and a half thousand, maybe six thousand customers. They all have quite strong opinions, I think, on things, and they're perfectly happy to let us know when we don't do something they like. <laughs> so, you know, um, so it's sort of, uh, that's, I, I, yeah, so we try, I think, as you're sort of developing and growing, and a case in point with Halifax, you know, that ultimately the only voice of customer that was getting through to senior managers was me as an anthropologist and it wasn't enough. Um, whereas I think within abundance, we all, we try to keep the hierarchy as flat as possible so that we're all touching the customer in some way. And when you do that, you're also in touch with the culture and what is going on outside your own office. Um, and that, I think that keeps you sort of true to the purpose that you set out or, or it allows you to navigate that purpose. You know, I think, particularly in finance, I sort of characterize it, the, the sort of the well-trodden easy part is always there. It's always tempting you. Yeah. <laughs> There's an easy way of doing this. And uh, the hard way is, is often got some challenges, um, whether they're regulatory or technological or communication. And you, you have to keep making a conscious decision to go down that path if you want to change things. And I think quite often, particularly finance brands, new ones, and Egg, this happened to Egg as an example, uh, they started to, to, to go down the easy path one too many times and, and they got stuck. And they went from being what was a breakthrough savings brand, which was really making some inroads in terms of changing the way we think about investment to becoming a credit card. Um, and ultimately that's what they ended up as. <laughs> Um, which is rather a sad outcome for what was quite a strong brand in the market at the time. Yeah, I think um, what's really important about values is they help, and I think you touched on it, they help you make those difficult decisions. Um, you know, if, if you're always going back to those when you're faced, like you said, the easy path and the hard path, um, having a strong set of values that people understand then helps you then make the hard decision. Uh, if, if the values aren't apparent and clear then like you said the decision making becomes yeah even more difficult it's easier yeah. to take the easy path then. 
Exactly. We don't put ethics in a sort of CSR department and say, okay, that's all fine. Um, ethics are written into the new business document that we sign off when we're looking at a new investment. You know, does this fit with our values? Um, what are some of the issues that might rise? Um, I mean, case in point, we have a, <clears throat> a new investment at the moment, which is uh, a company called Cogen. Now, they are a um, waste to energy company. And in some parts of the sort of green and environmental world, that's a controversial decision. Um, it's controversial in part because people, you know, tend to see waste to energy purely in terms of incineration, whereas Cogen's technology is gasification, which is a different approach. And it's, you know, not one that's burning anything that could be recycled, for example. Um, and it's dealing with a problem that is very real and now, which is that you know, waste that goes into landfill is you know, 65 times more damaging in terms of climate change than waste that is burnt uh, for energy. So right. you're kind of making some hard choices there. And we had to think quite carefully about the ethics of that. Um, now, at one level, it's our customers that are backing it. Uh, they've got to raise seven million pounds for this particular bond to make it happen. Um, and at the moment, it's sort of well on its way to that total. Um, but we, we put out what we felt you know, with the reasons behind that decision, why we think this was a good approach in terms of waste. And I think sort of pointing out the idealism on both sides, you know, this isn't, you know, waste isn't something that's just going to go away overnight. The UK's waste problem is only getting worse at the moment. Um, yep. And so, you know, we have to deal with it. And we think this is a good way of dealing with it. It's not the permanent solution, but it's a good solution now and for the for the next you know, a few years, it is how we will deal with a lot of waste that we cannot keep putting into landfill. Um, and yes, I would quite like it that everyone woke up tomorrow morning and decided they weren't going to buy any more packaged goods, but that's not going to happen. So, so in the meantime, what are we going to do? Um, and I think that that's the sort of, so there's a, you know, what we don't, what I don't agree with is is those that sort of take a holier than now approach in terms mm. of their investment and say, well, I'm only going to invest in this sort of company and this sort of person and these sort of ideal thing else can kind of go to the wayside. If if we're going to transition to a green economy, you've got to bring everyone with you. Um, yeah. and I see it like you're building a bridge, but it's a bridge that everyone can walk along. Um, there's no point ripping up the bridge behind you because not everyone's going to come with you first off. Yeah. Everyone has to go along that path, and unless we do that, we won't achieve it. I, I, I think you know you just create enclaves of smugness, effectively, yeah. <laughs> um, who, where people feel what well, we're doing all right. Why aren't you guys doing something about it? And it may be they had the financial resources to achieve it, and and these other people didn't. Yeah. Um, so you know that that kind of thing is is what we want to avoid. Well, I think history as well teaches a few things it, when um you know thatcher was trying to change things uh, she certainly didn't build bridges for lots of people to use your analogy mm. and, and we're still living with those problems today so um, oh absolutely yeah yeah it's always been the assumption that change is somehow good for people and you think well change is a reality for people now in the sense of change is going on all the time um but people's ability to cope with change is quite different at different points in their life and um, and 
and it depends on their personal circumstances and that somehow that's seen as a kind of moral failing i think you know universal credit is a classic example of this where i think 100 percent of the failings in universal credit are about misunderstanding the way that people understand money and not enough work was done to look at how people would practically deal with the change that they were bringing in yeah. and almost i think a bit like the fca you know there was like well this will be good for people because we make a single payment into a single bank account they'll be able to manage their money and every every single piece of banking research that's been done for the last 20 years would tell you why that was a bad idea and yet somehow they managed to miss all of that insight probably because it made their life easier as a provider of payments mm. um, to and then justify it in their own minds that this would be better for people you know, people would find it much easier to manage their money if they didn't have six different payments coming in. Uh, but in reality, everybody, if they're given the opportunity, will split their money up into pots so that they can manage it better. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it, it, it is a bit crazy that I think you know we can you can have a, a billion pounds of decision making going on, um, which probably ten thousand pounds worth of research would have told them was a bad idea in the way they're thinking about doing it. That's aside from. The ethics of universal credit more generally just the implementation of it is actually what's causing a lot of the problems um and i think you know the, the politics of it are kind of distinct from the internal politics of that decision which is a particular moral view of people who are less well off yeah. and it's a particular moral view of money which isn't always challenged um enough within a group of people and let's say that they are all paid 40, 50 grand a year, making decisions for people who are trying to make 15 grand a year work for them. Mm. And, and that, you, know, you can just see the disconnect immediately. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so that's, yeah, that, that's the kind of, I think that we don't think about, we, we tend to assume other people's, particular money, that other people's morality reflects our own. Yeah. And if it doesn't, they're somehow wrong. Yeah. Um, and that, that's a very common that's not a that, that goes both sides of the political divide by the way that isn't just a, a particular conservative view there's also um when labor boys in tax credits they made the same error um and i, I experienced that firsthand with some of the families i was working with it, it sounds like the the people designing these policies could do with um uh partaking some ethnic ethnic Sorry, I can't say the word. It's a ethnographic. Yes. <laughs> well, they, they, they do to some extent, but it's how you use it. I, I did do some work for problem families at the time, um, and it, David Cameron read the report because I, because he quoted it. Um, right. But he completely. But I didn't get the chance to explain it. <laughs> so people listen for the things they want to hear. Yeah. And um, yeah, anthropology is not immune from that. Yeah. Um, I think you, you, you do need to look people in the eye and say this is what actually happened and then then say this is how you might understand that and, and that, that's a difficult thing for anthropologists I think because we're not the sages you know we're not there's no point replacing one sage with another I think you you what anthropologists do well is challenge the assumptions that form what people consider to be knowledge and are part of that process of challenging they're not people who have somehow better or more knowledge than others 
but they go through a process that helps people understand the world a bit better and then they go through that process you know daily if you see what i mean you know in terms of doing their research yeah but uh, <clears throat> yeah it's a, it's a challenge for business i think that you you become specialized you people's jobs their power their self-identity gets connected to the knowledge that they think they hold and when you challenge that you'll challenge some fairly fundamental things for that individual yeah you're challenging their, their actual identity so yeah that, that's, that's exactly cool. yeah which is why they get angry with you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so, so swinging things back to to abundance and, and one of the things mm. you mentioned earlier uh, one of your key challenges is educating your customers about um what you're doing and how you're doing it um mm. thing we chatted about briefly earlier on was the fact that um you can actually invest via an isa be good to just understand uh, a little yeah. bit more about that and 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 how that works in practice uh, with with your platform yeah so um particularly with the isa there's a particular you know a process that people have to go through um so the isa that we have is called the innovative finance isa which was brought out in 2016 um, and it's designed to help people or to allow people to invest in both peer-to-peer -peer lending which is what zopa does and our own um, bonds and debentures um, and normally with an ISA you, you, you just put some cash into an account and then the interest that you earn is is tax-free or you buy uh, shares in a fund and yeah, any returns on that fund are tax-free but you don't really have to do very much else with an innovative finance ISA you 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 open the account by putting cash into it so you can put up twenty thousand pounds a year but you then have to invest that money into the projects that then become available um, ongoing so either within that year or, or following so um, people have to sort of get their head around that they, they they pay the money in to sort of open the account and to sort of reserve the allowance that, that the government gives you each year to invest and then once you've done that you, you then have to buy the specific bonds or the benches that become available on the platform or um, with abundance you can also buy from people who want to sell their investments in existing projects much as you might do on a stock exchange um, so, so you kind of have two choices most people buy new stuff um, that's what they kind of came to abundance to do they want to see new projects happen yep. some people will but if they put in quite a lot of money if they put in the 20,000 for example they might buy into some of the existing projects to give them a little bit more diversification in terms of the types of things they're invested into because obviously we would never recommend anyone put all of their money into a single project um, we overall we we make people go through a test when they sign up to check their understanding of the risks but also to emphasize that they shouldn't be investing more than 10 percent of their net investable assets in something like crowdfunding um, it isn't a liquid investment you can't sell it immediately um, even through our secondary market it might take a few days to realize that cash and you might not get back um, what you originally invested your capital is at risk it's not a cash product so um, all of those things kind of take into the round so our, our job really is to make sure when people come to us they sort of they understand they've got to buy into individual projects to get their return um, there's no fund that does that for them Secondly, if they want to do it through their ISA, they need to pay cash in first and then invest that cash. Um, they can also do it actually through a pension, through a SIP as well. 
um, that we we offer. Um, and then once they've done that, so once you've made those investments within the ISA, all returns that get paid are paid back into the ISA account and can be reinvested or taken out tax-free. Um, so then people you know, run that ISA account and grow it over time by either paying in more money each year within their allowance or and investing it or taking the returns from those investments and reinvesting them in new projects. So you kind of grow your capital, grow your money over a long period of time. And some of our projects, the returns are over up to 20 years. So quite long term income and capital return products. So um, got a wind farm investment that we did recently um, that raised uh, sort of two and a half million and that, that was paying returns over 16 years of about 5%. So over that period, you're getting a bit of capital and a bit of return each year back. Um, and then at the end of it, it's all paid off. That's, that's the idea with the bond. Um, others like the Cogem one I, I talked about is paying 10%, but only over, um, I think that's 40 months, that one. Right. So that's paying about 1% a month-ish for 40 months. Um, and so you know, and that's a much higher risk project because it's to do with construction rather than wind turbines that are just generating energy. So... What we, what we sort of taught people through is you can invest a bit into cogen, you can invest a bit into the wind turbines, you could buy a bit of this solar park that's already been funded. Each of those is a different type of project, a different type of risk, a different type of return. Overall, you'll make a return, you know, you, you can kind of calculate that, but actually each project is discrete, it's its own risk, and therefore the best thing you can do is put some cash into your ISA and start to buy into specific projects depending on how much money you've got and how much you kind of want to buy into different types of technology. Um, so the average investment people make per project is about £1,500. Right. Um, and the average investor that's with abundance is investing somewhere in the region of ten to £12,000, um, particularly since, since ISA came in. So some quite large investors and some quite large investments, but still we have plenty of people who've invested five pounds and continue to invest five pounds per project. Um, yeah, we treat everyone equally in that regard. And what's the, what's the range of returns or what's the historic uh, return? Yeah. Rate that, 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 I don't, I don't know. Well, the, the, given average they really yeah, range, yeah. yeah the, the, so the, the, the lowest returning project that we've offered has been uh, one that we did for um, social housing that was paying five percent um some of the solar projects have paid six to seven percent the wind projects a little bit higher usually eight to nine um and then we've looked at a number of bonds for companies uh particularly in the tidal which paid sort of percentages which are 10 to 15 percent and they're, so they're very high risk so it's quite a big range actually um and that range sort of reflects the evolution of the green finance world, which started out very much a sort of uh, infrastructure investing world, where you're investing into a wind turbine or a solar park, and has branched now into businesses that are funding, you know, working on the transition. So, cogen is a case in point where you're building waste to energy. Uh, tidal is about new forms of energy, so there's a risk that, that it, you know it doesn't work. You know, the design doesn't work or fails in some way. So. To reflect that risk, you get a higher return. Um, and our job really is, as Abundance is to um, put together uh, with the company an offer document 
which describes each project and the returns that you get and the risks on that return, importantly, so that you can make a decision about that specific project. And each one has its own offer document that you read and digest about 30 pages normally. Um, and our aim is to keep those simple in terms of their language, what they're describing. And in a way, it's a kind of test. If we can't describe it in the offer document clearly, then it's probably not a good investment for small investors because you need to be able to understand what you're doing and uh, understand the risks that your money is taking and how they're different from different projects. Got it. Got it. So just to wrap things up, uh, Bruce, what's, what's next for abundance? Well, we're expanding the sectors that our investors can invest into. So as I said, we started in renewable energy and always saw that as a stepping stone to public infrastructure in the broadest sense. So health, education, transport, um, different infrastructure projects. And um, so we're now working on a number of projects. Um, I've mentioned sort of we, we've looked at social housing. We're wanting to expand what we're doing in social housing because we see that as a real need, but it's also a good investment for people. Um, we're looking at investing into the building of things like GP surgeries um, and uh, hospital extensions, that sort of scale. So, so what next for us is really new sectors, but it's also then scaling up what we can fund. So we've moved from our average investment size was probably around a million when we started um, per project. Uh, we've just done two seven million pound projects. Um, so we've kind of moved up quite a large amount in terms of the scale of individual bond that we can finance. That opens up a new kind of group of companies and projects that we can work on. Um, some of those working alongside other investors, say working alongside a pension fund or a venture capital firm. So yes, for, for us, it's, it's really then so scaling up what we can invest into, expanding the range of things we invest into. And then as a business, it's sort of growing ourselves so we can bring on more customers and service their needs. Um, so we're, you know, we're about 20 people, we're looking to expand that. And um, we just did a, a crowdfunding campaign of our own with Cedars, um, where we raised just over one and a half million pounds of our, for equity investment in ourselves, as opposed to a, a bond or the venture that you buy from the projects. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to use that money to um, fund uh, marketing and product development for the next two to three years. So um, yeah, that, that's sort of quite a big step for us. We went from having 75 shareholders to just over a thousand now. Well, um, uh, so they've all joined us, um, and uh, yeah, we're we're looking to use you know that new group of shareholders to grow the business further. Great, and in terms of our listeners, what what, what advice would you give to other entrepreneurs and business owners that would like to add more meaning to their work or to their business? Um, well, I, I think it's. It's, I think per, you know, this, uh, uh, describing the purpose of your business beyond the financials um, and making sure that's part of your decision process when you're reviewing strategy each year. I think it's easy to sort of think, well, uh, when you set out, you kind of set the purpose, like you say, and you're a small team and everyone understands the purpose. And then the assumption is that somehow that's still being communicated by osmosis 
into everyone who then joins your business. I think, you know, I think that you maintain that purpose by constantly reviewing your purpose and your values and making sure they're still relevant. Um, and the, the problem that you're trying to solve is still fits with the original vision that you had and never really sort of resting on your laurels and certainly not assuming that a new person who comes into your company has really understood that. Um, so part of the way that you bring new employees in is to talk about the brand, where it came from, share that history, as well as giving them license to add to that story and bring their own views and perspectives to that. Um, so the brand doesn't kind of live in a box somewhere that's only brought out on special occasions. It's kind of there in people's lives, you know, when they're thinking about what they're doing on the phone, what they're doing in terms of the next email we sent, what we're doing in terms of the next project that we put together. And um, yeah, that, that requires fairly constant effort. Um, and where I've seen businesses sort of lose sight of their purpose, it's been that they've assumed that they don't really need to think about that anymore. Um, that they've made that decision and, and that, that's all fine. Um, and, and, and then you get this disconnect between the brand and what it's saying and actually the business and what it's doing. Um, and and that, that's quite an easy trap to fall into, I think. I definitely agree with you there, Bruce. And I think this is a great place to end today. So thanks very much for your time, Bruce. I certainly learned a lot, not least about how ethnography can really give you a better understanding about your customers and also how underserved so many people are with investment opportunities that actually do good as well. So it's great to see that even with a fiver, you can invest in abundance. So thanks again, and thanks for showing us all how you conduct business with meaning. Great. Thank you very much.